When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now they're focusing on limiting legal immigration. The lead starts right now. The Trump administration wants immigrants who are willing to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That's the message today as the White House announces a new immigration rule that could impact hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. The motive remains a mystery, but today new answers on how the Dayton killer got his arsenal, including a high-capacity magazine, thanks to a friend who also says he used to get high with the killer many times a week. Plus, it could be one of the worst nuclear accidents since Chernobyl. Why Russia's evasive explanations about five scientists killed at a military test site are setting off alarm bells for national security officials around the world. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And our politics lead today, this morning, the Trump administration announced it is seeking to change the rules for legal immigration, seeking to make it harder to get into this country legally. Specifically, the administration is targeting immigrants who are low income and less educated and thus more likely to rely on food stamps or other government benefits. The Trump administration claims it is merely trying to restore integrity to a broken system. But today's announcement is being interpreted by critics as an attempt to discourage immigrants who are poor and uneducated, potentially flying in the face of that famous Emma Lazarus poem at the Statue of Liberty, which a reporter asked Trump administration immigration official Ken Cuccinelli about earlier today. Is that sentiment, give us your tired, your poor, still operative, in the United States, or should those words come down? Should the plaque come down off the Statue of Liberty? Well, I'm certainly uh, not prepared to take anything down off the Statue of Liberty. Cuccinelli insisted that this rule is not aimed specifically at the Latinos and Latinas that the president has focused on rhetorically and with his border wall. Cuccinelli insisting there's no reason for any particular group to feel as though this is targeting them. If we'd been having this conversation 100 years ago, it would have applied to more Italians. Of course, it's not 100 years ago. This rule has been in the works for months, sources tell me, but it happens to come at a particularly fraught time for the Latino community in the United States, just a week and a couple days after the deadliest attack on Latinos in this nation's modern history, that massacre in El Paso, not to mention the biggest single state raid on undocumented immigrants in in Mississippi last week, where nearly 700 people were picked up at factories across the state, an ICE raid that did not focus at all on violent criminals, as President Trump had previously suggested, would be ICE's number one target, all of it leaving emotional scenes of children left at daycare centers asking what had their parents done wrong, when would they ever see them again. The timing of that raid, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary called unfortunate. Cuccinelli said today, more ICE raids are to come. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins me now. Jessica, talk us through what's in these new regulations and what it means for individuals who are trying to legally 
immigrate to the United States. Jake, I mean, this will really mark a drastic shift in the way that immigrants are evaluated during that application process for visas and green cards. Under congressional statute, really, the government has long considered how dependent an immigrant is or would be on government assistance when they're determining the eligibility for permanent resident status. But up until now, the government has only considered the cash benefits that immigrants received. But under this new rule announced today and set to go into effect on October 15th, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services will now also factor in whether the immigrant receives any number of public benefits, including food stamps, Medicaid or housing vouchers, and they will consider those as negative factors in an immigrant's application. Now, of course, the White House is defending this rule, saying that this is a way to ensure and encourage immigrants already here and those looking to come to the U.S. are self-sufficient. We certainly expect people of any income to be able to stand on their own two feet. And so uh, if people are not able to be self-sufficient, then then this negative factor is going to bear very heavily against them um, in a decision about whether they'll be able to become a legal permanent resident. So that's the White House's stance. But of course, critics are already crying foul. They're saying that this amounts to really a wealth test, that it will lead to discrimination against immigrants from poorer countries. It could keep families apart. And it could also prompt legal immigrants already here in the U.S. to refrain from seeking public aid. And Jake, earlier today, we heard that the National Immigration Law Center has said that they will be filing a lawsuit to challenge this new rule. Jake. All right, Jessica Snyder, thanks so much. Let's talk about all of this. Uh, Sungman, let me start with you. Is it fair to say that this rule says, don't give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free? Uh, give me people who are educated and have some money and, you know, can blend easier into the United States. Well, it's certainly the Trump administration through this action and other actions are certainly making it clear what type of immigrant that they are looking for into the United States. So obviously with the public charge rule that was rolled out earlier today, they want, um, as administration officials said, they want these immigrants who come legally to the United States to be more or less self-sufficient. But remember what the administration is also doing here, too. Uh, the, the, the big um, legislative plan that Jared Kushner has been drafting also uh, veers the current uh, U.S. immigration system to more one that's based on merit at the expense of people who may be lower income and whatnot. And while there's been so much focus on the president's crusade against illegal immigration and the border wall, there have been so many changes to the legal immigration that has gone under the radar, um, such as this long debate over the public charge rule that became public today. The administration is slashing the number of refugees admitted to the admitted to the United States. They are cutting uh, temporary protected status programs. So they really are reshaping the legal immigration system um, you know, day by day. And, and there was a, I remember a move by Senator Tom Cotton and some other Republicans, uh, David Perdue from Georgia, I think, uh, to limit legal immigration. It didn't go anywhere in the Senate. So now the Trump administration is kind of trying to do it through rulemaking in a way. Right. It's uh, the, the U.S. Congress has an inability, almost an intrinsic inability to legislate on immigration. And that's going to continue to be the case unless we see a, a sea change in, in, in an election. That, and, and because of that, the only way that the Trump administration can, can make changes is through these rules and through these procedures. And these rules can often be more, more difficult for immigrants to manage. Like in the, in the case of what happened today, you're going to have immigrants who maybe, maybe one member of the family is, is on an assistance program. 
and they won't be able to have that, have that. And if their children are U.S. citizens, they're going to be scared to, to get that assistance program. And their U.S. citizen children are going to have lesser outcomes for the future. And then you, you know, you end up with immigrants being poor and having, you know, lower, sort of higher crime rates and, and just a worse outcome generally. What's your take on all this? I mean, I'm pretty libertarian when it comes to especially legal immigration. Uh, I'm not on board for the idea that it is somehow uh, bad for American workers. I think largely it's good for the economy. It's good for us uh, to bring people in. Uh, There does need to be a way to adjudicate, and it does seem that often, whenever Trump changes the rules, there is going to be an objection no matter what he changes the rules in which direction. Um, I think his, I think moves to enforce immigration, illegal immigration, are far more defensible than a lot of the changes made to legal immigration, which I think is legal and uh, and largely enriches our country. But we, I mean, here's the thing: we don't actually legislate via poem. Like we want to, we want to embody the spirit of it. But it is an unfair expectation that that should be the letter of the law. And the letter of the law does have to have very specific rules. And I'm okay with changing some of those to make this very, very bad legal system better um, at the expense of, of, I mean, when we cannot, in the absence of doing this legislatively, which is we have seen we are incapable of doing, unfortunately. What's your take on this? Yet again, though, here we are demonizing the immigrants, and we're not, and so we're dealing with this part of the problem and not, I mean, it's a holistic problem, right? Yeah. There are people who are already here, there are these children in cages at the border, and there are the people who hire people who are undocumented in this country. And very rarely do those folks ever get face any kind of serious penalties. I think there was a study recently that showed something like 11 either companies or individuals have actually been prosecuted, but with minimal um, Right, you know, and that, sort of that one year, Syracuse, Syracuse did a study, yes. one year, 11 individuals As were prosecuted. As opposed to a much higher number yeah. of, yes. So, I mean, I certainly, you know, and this has been a trend we've seen for a very long time. The second thing I would say very quickly is, having grown up in California, this reminds me a lot of what Pete Wilson tried to do with Proposition 187, which was to say that undocumented immigrants could not access uh, non-emergency social services. And so then you were saying doctors and social workers and teachers were the arbiters of who's legal, who's not legal. And what I worry about with this, t- with this framework, given the sort of um, the incapacity of this administration to effectively administer any change of any kind of legislation is how is this going to be administered? Who decides? What's the rubric for which we're deciding? Well, you might, you know what? You're a little darker skinned, so you look like you might actually need to be on assistance later down the road. I mean, who decides and how do we decide that? And to what Rafael said, do we end up with a system where we then have people who won't use social services that are needed, which actually puts the rest of us at risk for health outcomes? Um, and let's remember, these are people who pay about $7 billion in social service in uh, social security. So yeah, and undocumented immigrants make, about, uh, make up about 5%. Uh, of the workforce. They're a big part of the labor industry. Uh, more than half the hired labor on farms, 15% of construction. There's this pretend, you know, everybody, we're all pretending that undocumented immigrants aren't an essential part of the workforce, especially doing jobs that, that citizens do not uh, want to do. So I'm going to just quickly, if you could, this does seem to be of a piece of what we're hearing from the Trump administration on the politics side of it in terms of talking a lot about people who are not white. Uh, whether it is the squad or Elijah Cummings. I I get that this is policy and different, but again, it it doesn't feel like a coincidence. 
There's been certainly a lot of this focus on race and the president recently. I mean, just going back to the the stunning racist comments with him him telling the four lawmakers to go back to for for U.S. citizen congresswomen to go back to where they came from, and then to the the comments involving Baltimore. Um, the president, um, as we've seen constantly, is really and the campaign is really driving on that base focus strategy to the expense of trying to kind of broaden his base. And this is going to be a tactic that we're going to continue to see on and on. Everyone stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about. President Trump just went after a former member of his own White House. What set him off then? A nuclear accident in Russia raising new questions about a possible serious threat to the U.S. Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead now. A former Trump White House official is now suggesting that the Republican Party should consider replacing President Trump as the party's 2020 nominee after President Trump had perhaps one of the worst weeks in his presidency. Anthony Scaramucci, who served as communications director at the White House for all of 11 days, is now warning that each day for President Trump is only getting worse. CNN's Pamela Brown picks up our coverage now from New Jersey, near where the president is vacationing. President Trump may be on summer break, but he's not taking a vacation from Twitter, going after his one-time communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, for this comment on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. I do try to defend him, but there are certain things that he's done that are absolutely undefensible. Trump saying he saw the show by accident and says Scaramucci was quickly terminated 11 days from a position that he was totally incapable of handling, now seems to do nothing but television as the all-time expert on President Trump. I try to stay loyal to him, uh, but you, you can't be loyal to somebody that, again, is asymmetric in his loyalty. Scaramucci telling CNN he no longer supports the president and hopes Republicans will reconsider their support as well. He is giving people a license to hate, uh, to provide a source of anger, to go after each other. I think you have to uh, consider a change at the top of the ticket when someone is acting like this. The president also spent part of the weekend retweeting baseless conspiracy theories about the death of Jeffrey Epstein. Those tweets seemingly questioning if the alleged sex trafficker killed himself, instead linking it to his political rivals, the Clintons, claiming Epstein had dirt on Bill Clinton. Sunday, White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway told Politico the president, quote, wants everything to be investigated, something she repeated on Fox News Sunday and didn't exactly put the conspiracy theories to rest. There was some unsealed information implicating some people very high up. But you do hear different people asking questions, and they want to know who else was involved in uh, Epstein's uh, crimes or, or even just um, activities. And in President Trump's first tweet of the day not long ago, he continued to slam Anthony Scaramucci, his one-time communications director, saying he's just upset that he wasn't offered a job in the administration. President Trump going on to say in this tweet that he seldom had time to return his many calls. So it appears, Jake, that this cat fight isn't going to end anytime soon. Pamela Brown uh, in New Jersey with the, where the va president's vacationing. Thanks so much. I've, I've never heard anybody describe a fight between two men as a cat fight, and I love it. It's, I love it. it's, it's I actually the, quite appropriate. I thought, the term had, I thought the term had been banned, but okay, we can bring it back for that. Uh, we should point out Scar Scaramucci also just responded to President Trump saying, quote, uh, you are losing your fastball. Many have called and are willing to work on a necessary replacement. Time to call in a good relief pitcher. Earlier, Scaramucci tweeted, quote, to those asking what took so long, you're right. 
I tried to see the best in Donald Trump based on private interactions and select policy alignment, but his increasingly divisive rhetoric and damage it's doing to the fabric of our country outweighs any short-term economic uh, gain. Uh, and Rafael, let me start with you because any other administration, this would be just like four-alarm fire news. <laughs> the former communications director for the White House is calling for President Trump to be replaced on the ticket. But it's the Trump administration, so it's... Our, our heads would be exploding, and yeah. instead we're, uh, you know, we're chatting about it in a civilized manner. The, the one thing is Trump does run a really big risk here. He runs a risk of hitting a sweet spot where he's not harsh enough for his base and for the likes of Ann Coulter, for example... And he's too harsh for Scaramucci and people who want to see his economic policies continue. You mean harsh? Are you talking about like immigration policy? Especially on immigration. I think immigration is is the Trump issue, uh, whether that's good for him or not. So if he if he hits that sweet spot, he could be in real political danger. Now, it's it's sort of a worst case scenario for him. But now we know that it exists. And that's that he should be worried. And Scaramucci has said uh, that there is a risk that other former Trump administration officials will come out and say similar things. There hasn't exactly been a stampede of them. But by the same token, it's not hard to imagine a few of them saying something. I think it's possible, but it's more likely. I mean, my own interpretation of what he was saying is I think he's channeling what a lot of Republicans are feeling, which is why are you tweeting when you should be doing your job? Right. Like the sort of remember at the beginning when we were waiting for the pivot. And we're still kind of waiting. I mean, it was cute. <laughs> I mean, yeah. right? It was kind of cute, right? There were all these stories about the pivot. It's not happening. And There's I think no pivot. What the Mooch is pointing out, right, is this guy's not going to change. This is who he is. So either we settle with our devil's bargain and just know this is the guy and know that he's not going to talk about the things we want him to talk about. The poli- He's not capable of, again, enacting some of these policy things. I disagree with him on policy. But still, other than the tax. Talking about the economy. Right. To- or heck, anything other yeah. than the squad, the this, the that. I mean, I think because the other piece of this is I think voters think, doesn't the president of the United States of America have other things other to things do? Other things to do than feud with uh, Donnie Deutsch and uh, Anthony Scaramucci. Sungman, your, your paper, <laughs> The Washington Post, um, has reported that the Republican Party leaders are really worried about being able to win back these suburbs uh, that they lost in 2018 in the midterms uh, and that the president's antics uh, – and racism and constant feuding on Twitter, et cetera, they're really worried that this is going to hurt their, their party's chances, not just to, for President Trump to win re-election, but the House and the Senate. Look, there are a lot of Republicans who held their nose and voted for Trump because a lot of a lot of it based on the policies. And Republican senators tell you time and time again that they are happy with the tax policies, their deregulatory policies, particularly the transformation of the judiciary. But they just really wish he would put down his phone, <laughs> a so we stop asking him questions, asking them questions about his tweets every day. But also because they know his rhetoric can be damaging uh, to the voters that they need. Clearly, the suburban area will be one heavily targeted area for uh, for both parties next year. And on the suburb issue, um, obviously, we talked about the, 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 the race issues, the, uh, the lack of focus on the economy, but also the issue of guns, which, is a, which was a very uh, rising critical issue for suburban voters. And the Republican Party writ large clearly still opposes any sort of restrictions on guns. And that's something that uh, some Republicans are cognizant of that could hurt them. And Mary Catherine, uh, obviously, the president gave more fodder to his critics this weekend when he retweeted these deranged conspiracy theories tying Epstein's death to the Clintons. Right. (laughs) Although the conspiracy theories about Epstein's death, no matter who is the culprit, may be the one unifying thing in America right now. It's just the left and the right. But we don't expect the president. No, I'm just. just (laughs) (laughs) But like, no, no, no. It's ridiculous. It's irresponsible. Um, 
I love the, the part about the story where he's accidentally watching Bill Maher on a Friday. <laughs> um, oops. Uh, and as far as Scaramucci goes, look, he's not usually an embodiment of like the average American. But <laughs> I will say this one sentence I'm paraphrasing where he says he's not worth the economic uh, upsides. Mm. Um, the bad is not worth the good. Is something That's a real calculation that many people, including in the suburbs, these college-educated uh, women voters, right. are making. Um, the problem is that Democrats have to give them somewhere to go. Right. We can talk about that later in the show. And we will. (laughs) Coming up, new information about how the Dayton shooter got his double drum magazine thanks to a friend who admitted to having done acid and pot with him. Stay with us. Breaking news in our national lead today. New details on the help that the Dayton shooter got in the months before his deadly attack. According to federal prosecutors, the gunman's friend bought the high-capacity magazine and body armor that the killer used to slaughter nine people and injure 22 others. This friend hid all of that in his house so the shooter's parents would not find them. He also told officials that he and the gunman regularly did hard drugs together between 2014 and 2015. He's now in custody and being charged with lying on federal forms in order to obtain the firearms for himself. And some more breaking news in our national lead sources are now telling CNN that accused pedophile Jeffrey Epstein was not checked on for hours before his death in a New York City jail over the weekend, despite protocol mandating a check every 30 minutes. Sources also say the investigation is now focused on not only the 24 hours before Epstein's death, but into wider systemic problems at that jail. CNN's Bryn Gingras is outside the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. And Bryn, uh, what else are you learning about the issues at the jail? Yeah, well, Jake, listen, this correctional center has a good reputation. It's actually considered one of the best run in the whole Bureau of Prisons facility, but obviously something went wrong here. You talked about the protocols that were not followed when it came to Epstein. Well, different sources saying uh, that two guards who were charged with keeping a watch on Epstein were working overtime shifts, something that was complained about or has been complained about by people who work inside this facility and likely something that's going to be looked into uh, by an admitted angry attorney general I was appalled, and indeed the whole department was, and frankly, angry, to learn of the MCC's failure to adequately secure this prisoner. Attorney General William Barr not mincing words today on the apparent suicide of multimillionaire and registered sex offender Jeffrey Epstein inside a New York City federal lockup. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility that are deeply concerning and demand a thorough investigation. The Justice Department Inspector General and the FBI launched investigations this weekend. The medical examiner performed an autopsy but is waiting for more information before releasing the cause of death. A source tells CNN it's believed Epstein hanged himself while in a special housing unit a month after federal prosecutors accused him of paying and recruiting girls as young as 14 to have sex with him in two states. Three weeks ago, Epstein was placed on suicide watch after prison guards found him with marks on his neck. But a source tells CNN Epstein wasn't on suicide watch this weekend. Regardless, protocol requires prisoners have cellmates shortly after coming off suicide watch, according to the source. But Epstein was alone. The Bureau of Prisons would not comment. We will get to the bottom of what happened and there will be accountability. As for the federal investigation into Epstein's alleged crimes, the Southern District of New York closed the case against Epstein, but continues to look into employees and associates who may have helped him recruit young girls. To those victims who were denied justice when Epstein died, Barr had this to say. 
Let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The victims deserve justice, and they will get it. And we know at minimum, Epstein was a multimillionaire. The extent of his wealth is even unknown. What's also unknown, Jake, it's important to remember the victims. Will they see any of his money with the civil lawsuits that continue to be filed? Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras uh, outside the MCC. Thanks so much. Joining me now to discuss, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara. Preet, uh, you hear the conspiracies out there, people suggesting that this suicide or this death, I mean, because they're suggesting all sorts of things, could not have happened without some kind of coordination uh, what's your take? Well, clearly something went wrong here. Um, I'm familiar with the MCC. Our office, the main office of the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District, uh, is connected to the MCC. And if you're awaiting trial and you haven't been given bail, that's where you reside. Uh, this is the most high-profile defendant, perhaps, in the entire country in federal custody. Lots and lots of people knew there was an issue here. And under existing protocols, by the way, you know the, the suicide prevention uh, program at the Bureau of Prisons is a very extensive one, has a lot of good policies in it. it. It runs to 25 pages. I read it again this weekend. So the fact that you have those policies in place, you have a high-profile defendant, and he ends up being found dead on Saturday morning, clearly something happened. That's a far cry, however, from some of the conspiracy theories on one side or the other, suggesting that someone who had something to lose from Epstein's potential cooperation uh, engaged in foul play and had a hand in his death. Clearly something went wrong Clearly, uh, there are going to be a lot of questions that have to be answered. I think Attorney General Barr does speak for the department and for people who are alums of that department, myself included, about how appalled we are and how angry we are that this happened. So what about Epstein's accusers who were seeking justice? What changes now? Is, is there still a chance they could see some kind of justice? Yeah, you know, so the charge brought uh, included, included a conspiracy count. And an interesting thing that happened on Saturday afternoon was not just the Bureau of Prisons coming out with a statement, although not very um, voluminous, but the current U.S. attorney, my successor, Jeffrey Berman, made a pretty pointed statement. And one of the things he said in the statement, which is strong, and I'm proud of the statement that my former office made, was that uh, they're not stopping the investigation with respect to co-conspirators, and the victims deserve justice and may still see justice. In my position, had I still been in, in place... I don't know that I would have made such a strong statement when I didn't need to, when I wasn't asked for one necessarily in that regard, on a Saturday afternoon before all the facts are known, unless I had a fairly reasonable probability or possibility that we would be charging additional people in the future because you don't want to raise people's hopes. That's speculation on my part. Mm -hmm. But generally, I think you want to be, uh, you know, exercise discretion in making such statements. And by the way, the attorney general echoed that in the clip that you played a couple of minutes ago, yeah. saying that, that, there, that there will be justice and co-conspirators sh co should not rest easy. That, to me, is a sign they have significant evidence on other people. And, and Preet, some of the focus, of course, as you know, has turned to this British woman, uh, Galen Maxwell, uh, after unsealed court documents revealed accusation, accusations that she helped uh, re recruit these girls, young underage girls, for Epstein. Uh, for accused co-conspirators such as her, how likely is it that they could face criminal charges? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know all the facts. I haven't interviewed the witnesses, and I don't know what the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and the FBI have. But consistent with what I said a second ago, the fact that you have the United States Attorney and the Attorney General both speaking uh, so pointedly about the potential for other charges, I would think she shouldn't rest easy. All right, Preet Bharara, thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks. it. The 2020 candidate who is changing strategies in Iowa as new questions are being raised about Joe Biden and electability in that important early state. Stay with us. 
In our 2020 lead now, after a furious weekend of campaigning in Iowa, the issue of gun control took center stage at a forum hosted by the group Every Town for Gun Safety, which favors greater restrictions on gun ownership. Vice President Biden, who has an op-ed in today's New York Times calling for renewal of the assault weapons ban he helped pass in 1994, is trying to focus on that issue. The, the subject also led to another notable misstatement by the former VP. CNN's Jeff Zeleny has more on what ended up a roller coaster trip for Biden. Joe Biden's whirlwind Iowa weekend. Hi, Joe. Still lingering in the air, with his campaign pushing back on the attention paid to a string of gaffes from the former vice president. We cannot allow this election to devolve in a tit for tat over name calling and quote unquote gaffes. Again, something that does not matter. This is not this is not something that's registering with the American people. At a forum on gun safety, Biden said this about the Parkland school shooting. I watched what happened when the kids from Parkland marched up to and I I, I, I met with them and then they went off to up on the hill when I was vice president. They went off the hill. Biden did meet with Parkland survivors, but the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School took place more than a year after Biden left the vice president's office. The former vice president has a long-running blooper reel. So noted for his stumbles, last year he said, I am a gaffe machine, but my God, what a wonderful thing compared to a guy who can't tell the truth. Mr. Biden, they say these gaffes in your electability. Well, that's what we determined pretty soon, won't we? And that is the question. As Democrats search for the strongest candidate to take on President Trump, do they care about Biden's well-known trail of gaffes? We're looking for people that have experience in government because obviously um, our president right now has no experience in government and it shows. So Biden looks good to us. Today, Biden's seeking to change the subject, renewing his call to once again ban assault weapons. The ban, part of the 1994 crime bill he championed, expired after 10 years and has never been passed again. Biden calling for universal background checks and an assault weapons buyback program in an op-ed in the New York Times. Less than six months before the Iowa caucuses opened the balloting in the 2020 primary, the race is extraordinarily fluid as voters are sizing up all contenders. As Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren drew large crowds to the state fair, Kamala Harris is increasing her investment here completing her first statewide bus tour today. This five-day bus tour has been about just, you know, five continuous days of being able to, frankly, go to places where, you know, there may not be an airport, but there are people who deserve to be heard and seen. Now, when you talk to voters here, Jake, admiration is the word that comes up again and again for how Democrats view Joe Biden. Now, all of them are not on board with him, of course, but there's far less talk out here in Iowa, which is so important, of course, to his future about his gaffes than whether if he is the the a right Democrat for the moment. You hear questions about his age. You hear questions about the direction of the party. But, Jake, one thing is clear. All candidates so heavily invested here now in Iowa less than six months before those Iowa caucuses. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Iowa, thanks so much. Uh, and Biden wrote an op-ed in today's New York Times about how he would ban assault weapons, enact a buyback program to get assault weapons off the street and pass a universal background check system. He writes that banning assault weapons, another word for certain types of semi-automatic uh, firearms, among the American people. And he added, quote, uh, elect- when you have that kind of broad public support for legislation that will make everyone safer and it still can't get through the Senate, the problem is with weak-willed leaders who care more about their campaign coffers than children in coffins. But something we should point out, I mean, Obama and Biden were in the White House and the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate and they did not push 
uh, an assault weapon ban or any uh, further gun restriction in, in those first two years. Exactly. And when actually ever since the assault weapons ban expired in 2004 and the assault weapons ban for whatever, whether it's correct or not, was blamed in part for the 94 losses by uh, by Democrats in that midterm race. It's really been a difficult issue for Democrats in general to touch. But now you see a movement a little bit. I wrote about this last week for The Post where they're Guns, guns are issues where the grassroots and the voters really drive and try to push the elected officials. And Democrats tell me they're starting to see that with an assault weapons ban. There's legislation in the House that has about 200 co-sponsors. The support seems to be growing. And there are certain Republicans. A lot of times the, those Republicans have dealt with similar tragedies in their backyards, and they are willing to embrace even an assault weapons ban. Um, I don't think it's <laughs> clearly not passing anytime soon, but these gradual changes are what um, gun control activists say are are the are the result of voters out there really pushing them, mm. uh, pushing the and, lawmakers. And Karen, during the first uh, couple years of the Obama White House, mm-hmm. when Rahm Emanuel was the chief of staff, he sent a message to the Attorney General Eric Holder, who mm-hmm. was trying to do something uh, right. to further restrict gun ownership, saying "shut the f up" about guns because they were worried about the electoral consequences. No, that's absolutely right. But look, I think we've got a couple of things that are a little bit different right now. The NRA, for example, is in a very different place mm-hmm. right now than they have financial troubles, ethical troubles that they didn't have. And they're sort of taking, trying to deal with their own issues. Also, though, and I've said this before, I cannot tell you how many of my friends who have small children talk to me about, Mommy, I ca- today we got M&Ms because we were able to be quiet for five minutes in the closet yeah. as part of an active shooter drill. That makes this issue very different for people. In, talk about the suburbs, right, in so many different parts of this country where having your children be part of active shooter drills is something very different than where we were even two years ago. And I think Biden also, can I say, is playing into this idea. He knows that this AP poll that said 73 percent of Democrats actually want somebody with government experience. Mm -hmm. So he just has to meet that bar that in terms of pick the issue. I think right now part of what he's playing to is this idea that people want a level of competence and calmness. Do you see gun politics having changed significantly in the last 10 years? Uh, it's hard to say because despite everybody's contention that it is, the NRA isn't the secret sauce. The secret sauce is that gun owners are very, very passionate about their gun ownership. And, and it vote. often outweighs the ownership and the, the uh, passion and the uh, activism of the other side. Um, and so that may m- remain true because on the other side, it sort of ebbs and flows. It does not ebb and flow uh, for gun owners, whether the NRA is in disarray or not, which it is. Um, but... When it, when it comes to this, for instance, Biden concedes that the original 1994 ban didn't really limit the lethality of guns. It was they were able to make cosmetic changes because you, it's hard to do this kind of legislation. He then says, well, we'd have to do more. Well, that's when you get into trouble with the general electorate and with gun owners and you get into electoral issues in a general election. Uh, because how far are you going to go? Buybacks, by the way, among the most empirically uh, unsuccessful programs when it comes to gun control. But you're right. He has to pass this, pass this plausibility hurdle. And he basically already has. The question is whether he ends up back under it because of all these gaffes. Talk to us about for a second, Raphael, about, about Biden and the, and, the, and the plausibility hurdle, because these gaffes are happening and there are Democrats who are concerned. I don't know what you hear on the Hill when you cover, but, but um, well, do you think he's in trouble? He's always been a gaffe machine. What we can see right now is he's the front runner who's, who's having a difficult time. But he's definitely not the Jeb Bush of 2020. That's that's not his situation. So that's already a step forward for him. Uh, he will he will step on his tongue again because he's been doing it for 
30, 40 years. Not the Jeb Bush of 2020. It's a good new, <laughs> new bumper sticker for me. <laughs> not, not, I'm not Jeb Bush. Uh, coming up, a deadly nuclear accident kills at least five scientists in Russia, but it could be a serious threat to the United States. We'll explain why next. We're back with our world lead, a mystery in Russia that apparently has many U.S. officials worried after a nuclear explosion killed at least five scientists working for Russia's atomic agency. And the world now wonders what exactly the Russians were working on and how bad the damage truly is. CNN's Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. And Barbara, you're learning that the U.S. believes these scientists were testing a new type of nuclear missile? A new type of missile, uh, Jake, literally worthy of James Bond, because the West has nicknamed this missile Skyfall. The idea, according to the Russians, is that it would be nuclear-powered, a cruise missile, and that means it would have a very significant fuel supply, could travel around the world and hold the U.S. at risk. They believe, the U.S. believes what happened last Thursday is the Skyfall missile or components of it blew up at this test area deep in northern Russia. Uh, some people were killed, at least five workers there, uh, according to Russian reports. But the real challenge right now is what happens if this missile someday does work. The Putin's idea from a military perspective is to have a missile that could hold the U.S. at risk on U.S. territory. So you have this missile that's nuclear powered. It can fly great distances and it keeps the U.S. at bay for Putin. The U.S. would find it increasingly difficult to defend Europe, to even get to Europe. Putin hopes it'll work, but it's already had several failures and this latest catastrophe. And Barbara, what about the radiation released by this explosion? You know, the Russians initially said there was a radiation release and then pulled back on some of that. But we talked to Norwegian nuclear officials earlier today, and they said all of their indications are there was some type of radioactive release into the atmosphere. So again, another concern. The Russian safety record uh, is very poor on its weapons development. And as they work on this kind of high-risk technology, a lot of concerns about what it may do to people who live in that region and the possible spread at some point of radioactive material into northern Europe. Jake? All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon, thanks so much. Coming up next, the Trump administration's latest move that could put that could put these animals at risk. We'll explain. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series now, grizzly bears, humpback whales, the bald eagle, all species that might not be here today without the Endangered Species Act, which was signed into law by President Nixon in 1973. Today, environmental organizations decried the Trump administration for moving to weaken those protections in their view by changing how agencies decide whether animals or habitats deserve to be covered under the Endangered Species Act. The Secretary of the Interior says that their move will allow the focus to be on the very rarest species, but critics worry all of this opens the door for more oil and gas drilling at the expense of endangered species. An environmentalist promised to challenge this move in court. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper, or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.